This world, as a system, with all its pride and antagonism to God, is doomed. And we're turning this evening to the prophecy of Obadiah. And that, I believe, is the burden of the pro prophecy of Obadiah. Please open your Bibles, if you will, to that very short Old Testament book. This book of Obadiah was written centuries before the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, it could have been written yesterday. Some of the things, some of the things that it says regarding the world could have been written for our very generation, as we shall hope to see. But it's written, this book is written, I would imagine, as a book of comfort for the Lord's people. But it is also a warning to those who are outside the kingdom of God, and the prophecy contains much hope, hope of deliverance also. And we're going to look at it in that sense. So the prophecy opens with these very brief words, the vision of Obadiah. And we know nothing of Obadiah, though there are a number of Obadiahs mentioned in the Old Testament. We know nothing of who this Obadiah was. And he simply gets out of the way so that the prophecy and the message from the Lord is front and centre of the stage. His name actually means the servant of the Lord. And that's what a true servant of the Lord does. Simply proclaims the message that God has given to him. Well, when was it written? There's not very much within the text to indicate from verses 10 to 14, we see uh, a few little clues. For thy violence against thy brother Jacob, and so on. And various details are given. And evidently there was an attack against the people of Judah and Jerusalem. And the people were taken away into captivity, whether wholesale or whether partially. It's difficult to say. And there, was, there were many who were killed. The main uh, suggestions made regarding a date are around 850 BC, when the revolt of Edom during the reign of Jehoram, alongside the Philistines and the Arabians, and we can read of that in Second Chronicles chapter 21, or it could be uh, 605 BC, when Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians swept through Judah and Jerusalem was taken and the people removed into captivity. The third option, and one which will immediately set to one side, is up from around the 4th century BC. But that's only really held by liberal theologians who can't abide the idea that Obadiah could predict centuries ahead of time detail regarding the removal of a nation from the face of the map, and therefore uh, they say, they contend, that it must have been written uh, looking backwards and projected backwards. Well, for my part, I favour the earlier of those dates, 850 BC, alongside many of the best commentators. And uh, there are one or two technical things that can just help us with this and help us to see uh, what the message is really all about. 
The first consideration is its position among the minor prophets. It's the fourth of the books. And although they're not strictly arranged in chronological order, broadly speaking, that is the case. And so the fact that it occurs earlier suggests that it's one of the earlier prophets. And then we consider the history of the Edomites. We know that Esau, who was the father of the Edomite nation, sold his birthright for a meal, only interested in the here and now, and his characteristics, the manner in which he lived his life, as Hebrews says, as a profane person, only concerned about uh, immediate gratification. That seems to have rubbed off on all of his descendants. They seem to have picked up this trait and it seems to have become characteristic of them. And then we see throughout their history, repeatedly they attacked Judah. And Ezekiel says that they had perpetual hatred and shed the blood of the children of Israel. All the way through their history, there was this antagonism between Edom and the children of Israel. And so that characteristic uh, is reflected all the way through and comes all the way down to the time of the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, when uh, Herod was the king uh, at the time, but he was an Idumean, a descendant of the Edomites. And we know that he did his very utmost to have the uh, babe Lord, Lord Jesus Christ put to death. These traits were always a part of their attitude towards the children of Israel. Just on a, a tiny technical note, in verses 12 to 14, we read these words, But thou shouldest not have looked on the day of thy brother in the day that he became a stranger. Neither shouldest thou have rejoiced. And it's cast in our English version as though looking back. But if you have a reference Bible, you'll see that actually this should and probably strictly ought to be an imperative. Look not, rejoice not. So it's not so much looking back, but it is a command that they should not look upon the children of Israel in this way. There are one or two commentators who point out rightly that the words found in this prophecy are very similar to a passage in Jeremiah and chapter 49. And so for that reason, they contend that Jeremiah wrote the original, that Obadiah uh, took the sentiments of Jeremiah and expressed them in his own prophecy under the inspiration of God. And so they date it to that period 605 BC. Whereas many say, no, Obadiah was the original and it was Jeremiah who took to his prophecy the sentiments of Obadiah and re-expressed them in terms that were suitable for the particular uh, dangers and the threats that were about to take place to the children of Israel. Well, I'm going to accept, as I say, that earlier date of around 850 BC. But then there are two further questions just before we begin to look in detail. The first is this. 
if this was when Eden was part of a confederacy, and it seems clear from verse 7 that it was, why was Eden singled out? And when you begin to think in this way, this is where we begin to see that there is a very distinctive message in this book. You see, the situation in Judah was deplorable. The children of Israel themselves had turned their backs upon the Lord. They had gone over to the worship of idols so often. They ignored uh, the ancient law and all that was given to them. They were deserving of judgment. Why Edom? Why should Edom particularly be singled out? And if Edom had acted with the Philistines and the Arabians, again, as part of that coalition of forces, why would they particularly be singled out for this prophecy given by Obadiah? They were a smaller group uh, in that coalition of forces. They were the smallest of the nations that were involved. Well, it's because of what they stand for. That profane person, Esau, that worldly-minded person, only concerned about the here and now. Edom, you see, came to stand for all that is worldly, all that is uh, just confined to time and to space. But then here's a second question. Did Obadiah preach this to the Edomites themselves? Well, it appears to be, have been written principally as a book to comfort the believing remnant of the children of Judah. But Edom is definitely addressed. So immediately from verse 2, Behold, I have made thee small among the heathen. Thou art greatly despised. The pride of thine heart hath deceived thee. And time after time, Edom do appear to have been addressed by this prophecy, leading us to imagine that perhaps it was preached by Obadiah, not only to the children of Judah, but also to Edom themselves. And then coming all the way down to verse 17, there's hope in this prophecy. But upon Mount Zion shall be deliverance, and there shall be holiness, and the house of Jacob shall possess their possessions. And in verse 21, and saviors shall come up on Mount Zion to judge the Mount of Esau. Saviors there, literally deliverers, shall come up on Mount Zion to judge the Mount of Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. There is this note of hope for Edom. But as we look at the prophecy, we see that the destruction of Edom is complete. We can see that in a number of verses. Verse 5, if thieves came to thee, if robbers by night, would they not have stolen till they had enough? The implication here is that Edom, you are going to be completely destroyed. The thieves, as it were, are going to come in and literally everything is going to be taken, all of your possessions. Similarly, the great gatherers in that verse. And in verse 9, every one of the Mount of Esau shall be cut off by slaughter. Verse 10, 
thou shalt be cut off forever. Verse 16, and they shall be as though they had not been. Verse 18, there shall not be any remaining of the house of Esau. Edom, the house of Esau, was to be completely destroyed, wiped off the map, to be a nation no more. And that's the promise that we have, that this world system will one day be no more. And just as certainly as Edom is no longer on the map, we may be sure as Christian believers that this world, for all its vaunted power and pride, will one day be judged and be destroyed and will be no more. What a comfort that ought to be for us. Well, then let's come to the passage. We have heard a rumour, says Obadiah, from the Lord. And an ambassador is sent among the heathen, arise ye and let us rise up against her in battle. We have heard a rumour, not that there was any doubts, not that there was any uncertainty. No, this was something that was in the future. This was something that was to take place at an unspecified time still to come. And the thing about this was that it came as something of a surprise. No one would ever have thought it. Edom seemed so secure. If, if you know anything about the land where Edom lived and the narrow valleys, the characteristic red rock face that they have there and the buildings that were carved into the face of those rocks, so easy to defend. They seemed almost impregnable. And yet this idea that they were to be destroyed would have surprised and shocked people. And yet perhaps at the same time, a growing realisation that they had uh, exalted themselves, they'd puffed themselves up, they'd ex lifted themselves up in their pride to such a level of arrogance that it was necessary that they should be brought low. We're told here that an ambassador is sent among the heathen. Strictly, that should be nations, but actually it's helpful to us that the English translators have chosen the word heathen and we can think of uh, the Western world. And you think of someone who comes, perhaps from uh, a completely unchristianized uh, area of the world, into the West. And though they've got no training in spiritual things, they're shocked by what they see going on in present day society. And even we see people coming from places where Christianity has reached and they come over to the West and they see the world outworking all of its policies, all of its ideas, all of its ideology. And they're absolutely dismayed and horrified to see the sort of thing that pure worldliness has led a, a, a present day society toward. And so that word heathen is so helpful. An ambassador is sent among the heathen, arise and let us rise up against her in battle. Behold, I have made thee small, Edom, so full of itself, this world, so full of itself. This is God's assessment of Edom 
and by extension, this world's system. I have made thee small among the heathen. Thou art greatly despised. For your own part, you imagine yourself so strong, so powerful, so secure. You imagine yourself as able to go on and to continue and to develop uh, as you like. But in reality, you're so small, pitifully small, and you are abased and greatly despised. And then before us in the verses to come, there are two elements that are set before us. Two categories of reasons why Edom should be judged. And these are parallel to features of the world for which the Lord will judge this world and its system. The first is their arrogant self-confidence and self-promoting attitudes. And we see those from verse 3 down to verse 9. And then from verse 10 down certainly to verse 14, uh, we see their antagonism towards the Lord and particularly their antagonism towards the Lord's people. And each and every one of these features is a feature of this world system. Let's look at them very briefly together. I wish we could spend more time. I must be quick, but do go back over this prophecy and see these things again for yourself. First of all, verse 3, pride. Oh, and that's a, a characteristic feature of this world system, isn't it? Almost now the dominant feature of present-day society, and it's even a word that has been taken, adopted and adapted for their own purposes and ends to promote. They're proud of their pride. Pride was a great feature of the descendants of Esau, just as it is a feature of the world. Thy pr the pride of thine heart hath deceived thee. This pride, you see, comes from within. Uh, you might have, and I see this in school, a, a child who has spent a long time and put a lot of effort into a piece of work. And we say to that, child, or oh, you should be proud of what you've achieved. Uh, they can have pride, that measured pride in their work, because there is that external evidence. There are things that we can point to that that pride can be based upon. But the pride of the world is the pride from within. It's pride from the heart. It's self uh, promoting pride. It's pride that is uh, entirely self-generated. It has no basis. The pride of thine heart hath deceived thee. And the world is being told, and we are being told, that this world is characterized by pride. Can you not see its source? Can you not see where it comes from? It's deceptive. And then secondly, in verses three and four, we see there the security of Edom. Thou that dwellest in the clefts of the rock, whose habitation is high, that saith in his heart, who shall bring me down to the ground? Though thou exalt thyself as the eagle, and though thou set thy nest among the stars, thence will I bring thee down, saith the Lord. And 
Edom were so certain that they were secure. It's said that they could be defended by as few as a half a dozen men stationed at the end of those very narrow valleys. It didn't take very many men to keep out and to head off uh, an invading force seeking to come in. They could be picked off very readily. So they imagined themselves secure. They thought that no one would be able to shake them and to destroy their inhabiting of that land. Yet we know that that wasn't true. They were taken. They were overrun. They were dispossessed. They were destroyed. So it is with the world. This world is so full of confidence, so secure. There are various things that we hear, don't we, from time to time. I think all of you here are old enough to remember this. Let's make poverty history. That was a slogan that people used. But it, it avoids the idea that there's sin in the world. And of course, we work tirelessly, we work hard to eliminate poverty, to feed the hungry and so on. But they will always be here. Because man is basically greedy and takes as much as he can for himself and leaves others short. And this idea that we're so secure that we can uh, bring about a solution to all the world's problems by our own strength is completely unfounded. We lift ourselves up and the Lord says, no matter how high you raise yourself, no matter how well you think of yourself, no matter how much you vaunt all of your achievements, I will bring you down. You're not as secure as you thought you were. But come on now to verse 7. We see a third aspect, and that is uh, their liaisons. All the men of thy confederacy have brought thee even to the border. The men that were at peace with thee have deceived thee and prevailed against thee. They that eat thy bread have laid a wound under thee. There is none understanding in him. And here Edom are warned that though they've uh, gone into confederacy, they've formed uh, bonds with the Philistines and with the Arabians, those uh, forces would turn upon them. And they were ultimately part of the force that was used to eradicate Edom from off the face of the map and it's very um, picturesquely put here they have brought thee even to the border and uh, we see that particularly in as we parallel this with this world system this world in order to shore itself up in order to maintain its stance has to form various coalitions uneasy agreements with patterns of thought and different ideologies. What they don't realise is that each one of those godless ideologies, those philosophies that are antagonistic to the word of God, will do what these confederates of Edom did, will take them to the borders, uh, will take them uh, to the, uh, the conclusion, the end goal, the end results of those philosophies that they have taken them. And so in the present world where we see people uh, 
saying that they can change their gender. Well, we sow the wind and we will reap the whirlwind. We'll be brought to the very border of that and all the consequences that follow. And we see that repeated in all of the different uh, patterns of thought and modes of behaviour that are adopted by the world. Ultimately, they turn back upon us. They bring us to an end of those things and then a wound is laid under us and that society at large suffers the horrendous consequences of those things. In verse 8, we see the imagined wisdom of the people of Israel. Shall I not in that day, saith the Lord, even destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of the Mount of Esau? They imagined that they had the very wisest of people among their nation. And uh, we know that there were some who were regarded as wise from the book of Job, one of Job's comforters, not uh, perhaps particularly wise because condemned by the Lord, but Eliphaz the Temanite and the city of Teman is mentioned in verse 9. So Eliphaz presumably was one of the wise men from among Edom and there were many others that they regarded as so wise. And uh, the Lord says here, no, that vaunted wisdom of yours will uh, completely evaporate. And we see that. We see the flawed uh, policies that are adopted by the world. And when the Lord comes in judgment, those will be utterly discredited. Many already have been. We've seen communism rise and we've seen it being shattered and fall. And other things too have come and they've gone just as quickly, discredited, worldly patterns of thought. And verse 9, their great and vaunted strength and thy mighty men, O Teman, shall be dismayed to the end that every one of the Mount of Esau may be cut off by slaughter. Yes, every, uh, every strength that this world imagines that it has will ultimately be brought to naught. So those are the features, the particular sins of Edom are pictured in the world. But then we see from verse 10 that the Lord goes on to expose also their antagonism to the people of God. They are to be judged not only for their attitudes, which were unwarranted, but also for their actions. And it's the same with the world. And the parallel is almost uncanny. Verse 10, for thy violence against thy brother Jacob, shame shall cover thee, and thou shalt be cut off forever. The, the first thing here is their direct opposition and hatred of the people of God. The Edomites took every opportunity to express their opposition to uh, the people of Israel and to Judah. They were active in their hatred, and so it is with the world. There is direct opposition to the people of God. There is that uh, outright and overt persecution that we see so in so many countries around the world, perhaps even shortly to come in our own land. 
The storm clouds appear to be gathering. The Edomites within this world system would love to express in some more tangible form their opposition against the people of God and the message of the Bible and the gospel of Jesus Christ. But for that, this world will be judged. What a comfort to us if we should be called to go through that opposition, to know that we suffer for the sake of our God, that it won't be long and judgment will most certainly come. Look at it in verse 11, because it goes just a little bit further. Edom aligned with the opponents of the Israelites in the day that thou stoodest on the other side, instead of defending your brethren, those with whom you have that tie, and you should have protected them and kept them. Instead of doing that, you stood aside. You opened the way, as it were, pointing the way for those incoming troops to take. You stood on the other side in the day that the strangers carried away captive his forces and foreigners entered into his gates and cast lots upon Jerusalem. Even thou wast as one of them. So this world has a responsibility towards the Lord's people uh, to protect and to uh, make possible the free proclamation of the word of God and for their failure to do this and for allowing attacks to be made upon the people of God, this world, like Eden, will come under the condemnation of Almighty God. And then come down to verses 12 to 14, and there we see, Thou shouldst not have looked on the day of thy brother, in the day that he became a stranger, neither shouldst thou have rejoiced over the children of Judah in the day of their destruction, Neither shouldst thou have spoken proudly in the day of distress. There was that rejoicing of the Edomites as they saw the children of Judah suffering so badly. Oh, yes, we know. Very often they had brought that punishment upon themselves by their disobedience. And yet there was no cause for them to rejoice over them and to lift themselves up in pride in the day that their brethren were in distress. But isn't that what we see in the world today? The enjoyments of any reverse that is seen in the church, if within the professing church there is some grievous sin committed, oh, it's paraded on the front page of the newspaper. It becomes headline news because it undermines the testimony of the church and it they feel that it bolsters their own stance and stand, that the church is discredited and all that it has to say is not to be listened to. Oh, they should never do that. Never rejoice in the calamity. Yes, these things are true because we have this treasure in earthen vessels. We are sinful. We have to watch for these things as the Lord's people, but for their hostility in this way, just like Edom, were to be judged, so this world system will be judged. But it goes further. Thou shouldst not have entered into the gate of my people, verse 13, in the day of their calamity, 
Yea, thou shouldst not have looked on their affliction in the day of their calamity, nor have laid hands on their substance in the day of their calamity. And this is about the encroachment of the world upon the church. And we're seeing that whole scale uh, in our day where the government is seeking to impose upon churches the necessity of uh, holding same-sex marriages and other such things, seeking, on the other hand, to curtail our liberty to proclaim uh, the, the full gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and to seek to win the lost and call them to repentance and faith. You can't name sins. You can't speak of judgment and they want to rob the church. They want to encroach. They want to come in and take our substance and remove it as though uh, they had that control over us. Just as the Edomites were judged for participating in looting the city of Jerusalem, this world will be judged for its encroachment upon the church, upon holy things and taking things with which they had nothing to do. Oh, these are incredible things. And then verse uh, 14. Neither shouldst thou have stood in the crossway to cut off those of his that did escape, neither shouldst thou have delivered up those of his that did remain in the day of distress. And in those times of confusion, when the battle was raging, and there were some who made an escape and were seeking to hide themselves. It was the Edomites who sought them out, who stood in the way so that they could be captured and they could be slaughtered or taken away into captivity. And for this, the Edomites would be judged. But this world is just the same, seeking to exploit, as we've said before, the misfortunes of the church looking for every opportunity to undermine the credibility of the teaching of the word of God. And for this, the world, like Eden, will be judged. World's judgment is certain. But as we move to the end of the prophecy, we see here both judgment and deliverance. Verse 15, for the day of the Lord is near upon all the heathen. As thou hast done, it shall be done unto thee. Thy reward shall return upon thine own head. And here begins the, very, the great certainty of judgment for Eden. And we picture the judgment of this world and its system. It shall return upon them. And as they have uh, dealt with the Lord's people, so they in turn shall be judged. Verse 16, For as ye have drunk upon my holy mountain, revelling, having some kind of bacchanalian feast to celebrate their uh, imagined victory over the Lord and over his people, so shall all the heathen drink continually in judgment. Yea, they shall drink and they shall swallow down and they shall be as though they had not been. Judgment is absolutely certain. For Edom, first of all, and we know that that judgment was wrought out, but there are elements of it that are still yet 
to be accomplished. Because here, not only Eden, but all of the heathen are embraced. And so the prophecy extends its scope. It comes and speaks of the day of the Lord. And that judgment began as Edom were exterminated. And then the coming of the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, the great victory over sin, over death, and over the enemy of our souls at Calvary. Yes, the Savior is now in heaven, interceding for his saints, but he will come. And finally, all this will be wrought out. And all of this is contained in that little phrase, the day of the Lord is near. And it has begun, and it will ultimately entirely be accomplished in the final judgment of all wickedness and sin. But we come to the passage of hope, verse 17. But upon Mount Zion shall be deliverance. Salvation, the Saviour tells us, is of the Jews, John chapter 4 and verse 22. And the day of the Lord that has been introduced in verse 15 will include deliverance and will usher in a new kingdom characterised by holiness. And though Edom as a nation was to be destroyed, individuals could still be saved. And though this world is to be destroyed, individuals can yet be saved by the mighty grace that has been brought in by our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the house of Jacob shall possess their possessions. Does that mean that the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions? Well, if it is, if it does, that's part of the comfort for us. Because we have been uh, given so many privileges and blessings of which we spoke this morning. And knowing that this world is to be judged, even in the midst of the heartache and the difficulty and the very the reality of opposition that we encounter, we can possess those blessings that are ours in Christ Jesus. We can enter into them, the word of God, prayer, fellowship, service, the gospel, all the blessings that are ours in Christ Jesus, we can possess those possessions and they can mean so much to us. Or perhaps it means that the house of Jacob shall possess the possessions of Edom. And there is a sense in which, certainly in the future age, where all things will be ours, literally, as sin and the world and its system are eradicated in the new heavens and in the new earth. All these things will be ours to explore and to enjoy as we worship our God in that eternal realm. But look at verse 18. And the house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau for stubble. And they shall kindle in them and devour them. And there shall not be any remaining of the house of Esau. For the Lord hath spoken it. You know, we have a great ministry. A ministry 
of deliverance and a ministry of judgment. And every time we preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, every time we give out tracts or knock on doors, engage in outreach and ministry of any kind, two things are going on. Our great prayer is that individuals will be brought to see their need of the Lord Jesus Christ and bow the knee to him and seek his pardon and forgiveness. And we go with the good news of the gospel. But we know that for some, we will be a saver of death unto death. And on that great day, that great day of final judgment, our testimony will stand against those to whom we have spoken. Oh, we pray that the Lord will mightily move and save many. But we know that there is this element of judgment and it's pictured here. The house of Jacob shall be a fire. The house of Joseph a flame. That's the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom. And the house of Esau for stubble. And they shall kindle in them and devour them. Our testimony powerfully used even in judging this world. What a burden of responsibility therefore rests upon us. How much we ought to pray that many, many more would not be judged by our testimony, but would be saved. That many more would be drawn in. Oh, we must pray to our God for that great work to take place. Then come down. Uh, oh, I ought to say here, that it says here, for the Lord hath spoken it, as though to uh, emphasise that this is nothing to do with us. It's not because there's anything in us. It's not because we're better than anyone else that we've been saved out of that system, as we'll say towards the end. But it is because the Lord hath spoken it. This is his settled declaration, his will made clear that the world is to be judged. Well, in verses 19 and 20, we see some elements of the literal fulfilment, but these are pictures of the great spiritual fulfilment that shall take place. They of the south, the south of Israel, Judah, shall possess the Mount of Esau, and they of the plain, the Philistines, and they shall possess the fields of Ephraim and the fields of Samaria. And Benjamin shall possess Gilead. You know, one by one, soul by soul, as we preach the gospel, we gradually possess a soul here and a soul there for the kingdom of our Saviour. And this is about the expansion, the ever-expanding kingdom of our Saviour all the way through time. And the captivity of this host of the children of Israel shall possess that of the Canaanites, those who have been dispossessed and dispersed, those who have been in, slaves, in slavery uh, to those in Babylon, they shall return and they shall take up residence in the land that the Lord shall give them. And, uh, and so it goes on. And then lastly in verse 21, and saviours 
shall come up on Mount Zion to judge the Mount of Esau. Deliverers. You know, that's what you and I are. In the providence and the purpose of God, each one of us is a deliverer. Every preacher, of course, especially called to the work of delivering souls, of declaring the truth of God, of appealing to individuals to come and to find peace and salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. But each and every one of us, whatever our role, has a, a, a part to play in this great ministry of deliverance. Saviors shall come up on Mount Zion to judge the Mount of Esau and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Once this world is brought to an end, the kingdom will be evidently the Lord's. It is his now. But the Saviour's glory will be seen to be entire on that day when this system of the world is brought to an end. I need to close by asking you to turn in the book of Deuteronomy to chapter 23. Deuteronomy chapter 23 and verse 7. And this is vital. This world is doomed. But look at the sentiment that's expressed here. Thou shalt not abhor an Edomite, for he is thy brother. As we look out from our church at the world, we can see it almost as a them and us. They are to be judged. They are consigned to an eternity away from God. They follow uh, a discredited, uh, a doomed system. But we're never to look down upon, never to abhor a worldly. And we're given a reason. For he is thy brother. Well, the Edomites were brothers to the Jews. And they were not to be abhorred by the Jews. But the world are our brothers in an even closer way. Because we were once a part of that system. And the Lord, in his incredible grace, inexplicably has set his love and his hand upon us. Why did he choose me and my brothers and sister not for salvation yet? Why did he set his love upon me? I can't look down upon them. I pray for them. And we must never despise a worldly. We look upon them with great love and compassion. We warn them. And in Obadiah, we have some of the warnings that we can bring. Or oh, don't go in and say, you're doomed. And uh, give it to them, all barrels blazing. But you might be able to pick one or other of the arguments that use, is used by Obadiah to show the folly of following a system that completely ignores the message of the Bible. But our great job and task is to be deliverers, to seek to win the lost, to bring them in. There is deliverance.
upon Mount Zion in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ shall be deliverance and there shall be holiness. That's our great task, to win the lost and to bring them in to the experience that we have of our Saviour. Well, may that be a help and an encouragement, a comfort to us as believers to know that this world ultimately will be judged by our God. Amen.